5: This is the Cats Roundtable. John Cats with here Sunday morning. One great show for you today. We have Governor David Patterson. What's going on with Albany and the state of the state? Vito Fasella. Staten Islanders, Islanders are mad as heck on what's going on with congestion pricing. Steve Cates. What's up there in the sky? Dr. Peter Michalos. How do we live to be 100? Nicole Galinas. Well, what's going on with the budget in New York? Nobody really knows, but we're going to find out soon. And let's start with Michael Stoller talking about the real estate industry.
3: Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have a young, dynamic real estate broker who founded his own business, I believe, at the age of 27. Um, and he's been in business basically since he's 21 in the real estate business. Uh, I have Ben Blumenthal, who is the CEO and founder of NOAA Real Estate. Thank you for being here.
6: Thanks. It's a pleasure.
3: So let's talk about it. How did you decide to get involved with real estate? You graduated Yeshiva University?
6: So my foray into real estate started when I was a young kid. We'd come into the city on Sundays with my parents and my neck was always craned upwards and just the energy and excitement of the city and the buildings and the stories and the characters was always something that gripped me. Um, It was very exciting for me and I always loved to hustle. I was always uh, selling the chocolate bars when I was in elementary school and very entrepreneurial. And what I saw in brokerage was an opportunity to marry a love for sales and real estate. And brokerage, you know, really, as any broker will tell you, has a low barrier to entry, for better or for worse, but it's really up to you to make your own luck. And there's no limits as to what you ac- can accomplish if you're willing to work hard and stay focused. And that was something that really drew me At a school. Uh, I had gone down the path um, on more formal investment banking positions and whatnot and uh, just didn't like the rigidity and the uh, hierarchy that existed there. Um, so, I found brokerage uh, to be a really compelling opportunity out of school.
3: Now, uh, NOAA Real Estate specializes in properties in Midtown, um, Grand Central, sometimes the Plaza District, uh, maybe going down to 14th Street. How come you specialize in that, those markets specifically?
6: So as Bob Mackle famously says, you know we're in the information business, and when you're a broker, um, there, there needs to be a compounding factor to your work every day. And what I found um, a few years into my career is that the more I would specialize, the better my information would be, the better my angle would be. And what we decided was we were going to take a specialty for representing tenants only um, in Midtown, going down to 14th, 23rd Street, up to 57th Street. And just the information that we were able to track um, was much more current much more relevant. And we also had a size of prospects, you know, our tenants. Um, We only have about 10 to 15,000 people that we're trying to touch a couple times a year to find out where they're at. So the market coverage is much more manageable uh, on the one hand for the prospecting and and business development. And in terms of execution and being a market authority and that sort of thing, um, you draw a much better compound value from your activities on a daily basis if you have a clear specialty. I mean, we can tell, you know, within the first 30 seconds if this is a deal for us or not.
3: Okay, with regard to the changes in the Grand Central neighborhood, how important has the Long Island Railroad coming to uh,
6: Grand Central had an effect on tenants? It's been a game changer. It's opened up a new market for people who were really married to the Penn Plaza District. It's posed some challenges for Penn Plaza, which has always been... You know, very heavily populated by people coming in from Long Island. Grand Central now being an option for those people uh, has really been a challenge for Penn Plaza. It's been a plus for Grand Central. But I think zooming out, this uh, redevelopment and the rezoning of Grand Central has given a lot of landlords pause as to their future on some of those buildings there. A lot of them are thinking about putting in demolition clauses or redevelopment clauses and uh, really thinking about the highest and best use for the property for the next 10, 20, or 30 years with the air rights that are available and um, what they can do to to redevelop it. So um, let's put some buildings in limbo, buildings who may have been struggling for other reasons as well. Now,
3: are these A, B, or C buildings?
6: Um, you know, look, it, it's mostly the B buildings that are probably less than uh, three hundred or 400,000 square feet. I mean, those are the prime candidates, but some of the A buildings are very challenged right now who are looking for a, a path forward. Either they have to reinvent their buildings, uh, you know, redevelop them in some way, or... Um, if there's enough juice to take them down and, and rebuild something similar to what RXR is doing on Forty Second Street, to what Boston Properties is doing at the old MTA headquarters, or what you know J.P. Morgan and SL Green have done,
3: what do you think of uh, the uh, possibility of the the West Side and the Hudson Yards neighborhood?
6: So I think it's been a resounding success. You know, I think it, the, the the lease up there has been very successful. It was very quick, and um, there's been tremendous demand for new quality product in Manhattan. Um, and uh, I think that's proven that there's really a deep demand willing to pay top dollar for, for new product, whether it's in Hudson Yards, Park Avenue, or 42nd Street. But that's really what the market wants right now. Um, the challenge with Hudson Yards, what, what many people would have liked to see is some of that momentum and energy spill over into some of the neighboring blocks there, talking about you know 8th, 9th, 10th Avenue. Uh, I don't think that that momentum has spilled over enough to, to support those neighborhoods that do, are struggling. Do you
3: believe that there are enough amenities in the neighborhood to take care of? the people who are working and living
6: in the neighborhood? Um, I think it remains to be seen. Uh, you know, I think right now there are some challenges uh, going up and down 8th, 9th, and 10th Avenue. Um, <clears throat> police presence has to be strong, and, and the mayor's got to be, um, you know, vigilant about making sure that the quality of life is not diminished in those areas. Inside the complex of Hudson Yards, I think it's, a, it's very pleasant, but I think, you know, once you go a block south or north of it, um, you know, you've you got to be careful.
3: Okay. With, with regard to the Grand Central neighborhood, where is the best opportunity for a tenant to get a, a low rent, good concession, a good good package in this market?
6: You know, I think it's a similar question to where's the best place to get a suit. You know, it depends what someone's looking for, what kind of size they are, what kind of attention they need. But each each tenant's got their own requirements. I think, you know, big institutional level uh, tenants can see opportunities in buildings that are at a inflection point right now with, with their future that may need to redevelop themselves. So you could Probably negotiate for some great amenities or some great upgrades in the building. I think boutique tenants have a, a great pick of buildings that have presented themselves as great boutique options with divided floors or maybe some amenities that wouldn't necessarily be available to smaller tenants. And if you can um, fit into a secondhand custom-made suit, you know a sublease can also be a great option sometimes for tenants who may be dealing with a company that's just looking to get the space off their books and really take whatever write-downs necessary for the first person that comes to the door.
3: I'd like to thank Ben Blumenthal for being here, and I'll see you next week.
5: My pleasure. Thank you. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call one 866 303 6357 or get a free gold guide at com. that's prioritygoldguide.com
5: welcome back to the Catch round table with us today is governor david patterson uh governor uh, happy new year again and uh there was a state of the state uh, going on uh this week uh give us a reading give us an update of uh, where the heck uh, you think New York State is.
2: Well, Governor Kathy Hochul delivered her state-of-the-state the State message. Uh, they've been delivering them since uh, in, in that room since 1879, <clears throat> and the legislature and the other statewide elected officials were there. I was pleased to be there and observed it. And one of the uh, issues that she brought up and talked about for quite a while was adapting the state's resources to the emerging focus of AI, artificial intelligence, and enabling students in all of the uh, colleges around the state, not only the state universities, but the private institutions that want to be, to be eligible for some of the services that she wants to make available for AI. She didn't touch too much on what happens when AI goes wrong. She did say that it has to be clean, it has to be accountable but I thought that was an interesting departure from what governors usually talk about at their state-of-state addresses. I thought it was pretty creative. And, well, um, well
5: you, you know my opinion on AI. AI doesn't really exist. It's just a fancy word that uh, taking Google researches, or, or I'm just using that as an example, from many, many sources and trying to integrate it. But integrating it is only to the ability of the computer programmer
2: yeah and in addition, it's been believed to be a jobs killer in a lot of places where it's already being used. It was a you know kind of a controversial issue for her to get into, and particularly the amount of time she spent on it. But she obviously had done a lot of research on it, and that was uh, in, in, you know in that regard. Meanwhile, she did talk about that we as a state are not going to spend money that we don't have. So I think that was a little warning to the legislature who may have some real ideas about some some spending that that she's going to not be in accordance with that, you know, sort of philosophy. And that was, was, you know, basically it. The atmosphere around the chamber, though, I will say, seemed a lot more festive. Uh, People seemed anxious to get back to work. They seemed more tolerant of each other than I have seen them in the past. So that's, you know, kind of uh, what her report was. She also challenged Mayor Adams by uh, making resources available for housing uh, in in New York City and uh, a great amount of it. And she even asked him in front of the the whole uh, joint session of the legislature if he liked the idea. Now, we never heard the answer. I guess he must have smiled or nodded or something. But that was another Activity in Albany that in in, in a place where you think you've seen everything. Uh, Those were a couple of uh, additions that I'd never seen before. I
5: understand that the uh, governor uh, never mentioned the migrant uh, crisis. Uh, I mean, I guess she just didn't want to get in in trouble with with Washington. I mean, that's the only thing I could think of.
2: Yeah, uh, that was noticeable. A lot of people talked about that right after the address. It might really just be that the state of the state is really like the governor's wishes and dreams. It's basically all positive. They had a couple of incidents of uh, uh, a child who had been institutionalized because she was on social media so much. And they introduced her and, you know, these little feel-good moments. And they had a video presentation before the governor spoke which was a little unusual, and it didn't actually stop the audience from talking to each other. So I don't know that they'll try that again. But that was noticed, and I think it was just that she wanted that her whole presentation to be positive about the work she wanted to do with the legislature. In that regard, she was affected in that way. But I'm sure that she'll be asked about the migrant situation. You know, the, the media is not going away. And she's not going away, and she'll have to talk about that as time goes on.
5: Understood. Any other subjects that you felt were very important that you brought up?
2: After the governor's state of the state last night, I took a look at the debate and uh, President Trump's response. President Trump made a very interesting comment. He talked about the fact that in New Hampshire, and she pray, he praised the state and the people who live there, but that they have a situation in their primaries where you can vote for either a Democrat or a Republican. So in other words, Democrats could uh, pile on and get into the Republican Party since President Re- Biden is not being
4: opposed,
2: and maybe, you know, change the outcome of it. I thought it was interesting that if he noticed that, that he would mention it publicly because, you know, people have forgotten about that and it would, would sort of wake them up. On the other side... Nikki Haley, I think one of the reasons she's been a star in the previous debates is she comes across as such a humane person and easy thing and almost Reagan-esque in the way that she comports herself. But last night, it was just a nasty exchange between her and Governor DeSantis, and they just went back and forth, and I didn't think either one of them accomplished anything. So uh, in this quadrennial referendum on uh, elections and presumably policy, I hope we hear a little better than from the candidates than we did last night.
5: Give us your interpretation of uh, Governor Christie saying he suspend, he's suspending his uh, campaign.
2: Well, I think his attempt to bring down former President Trump has not gotten anywhere. None of the other candidates have picked up on anything he said. The president's poll numbers go up every time... He seems to be attacked or in, in court. And uh, after a while, it, it's, it's, you're beleaguered trying the same approach and it not working time and time again. So I think he realized he's not going to raise that much money anymore. And, and he, you know, he had his chance to try to be disruptive, and it didn't really work. And the best thing to do at that point would probably be to get out.
5: Now, the Democratic situation in the presidential election, Nobody really knows. I mean, do you have any intuition or any uh, opinions of possibilities?
2: Well, I think that President Biden is going to try to run on some of the recent economic numbers, which are accepted as being positive. Now, when we talk to Larry Kudlow and some other analysts, uh, they show how things are not nearly as, as good as they sound. It's enough to... Make that the real, you know, the 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 real driving issue of the Biden re-election campaign. But I think that the president is just going to have to address some issues such as the border, some issues such as continuing inflation, even if prices are going down, and that he's he's going to have to be far more dynamic than he was when he ran four years ago. Because what really happened, I thought in that race, it was kind of dead even. So well, they got to the debates, and Biden kind of came out really swinging. I don't think anybody expected it. And it, I think it rattled the, the uh, former president and created some momentum for him. And, you know, then the former president, you know, having an, an episode, uh, you know, right before the election. I'm sure that didn't help. President Biden hasn't demonstrated that, uh, you know, kind of dynamic nature that he showed right before the election in 2020, and I think uh, he's going to have to, as they say, up his game, uh, or he may be in the position that the former president is right now.
5: Uh, Last question, uh, Governor. There's rumors around that the Democratic Party is trying to get Michelle Obama interested. Have you heard those rumors and any
2: gut feeling? I've heard the rumors. I don't think it's real. I mean, uh, she's she very articulate be a very good candidate. She has a better presence even than former President Barack Obama. And it would be certainly interesting. Also, you know, the issue that we've never had a woman president would come up. And I think it would be a, a real interesting battle between her and presumably former President Trump. But I don't think that she wants to do that. I just don't get that feeling, you know, when when she makes appearances and that kind of thing. I think it's one of those things, like in sports, where you talk about who you think, uh, you know, the Knicks need to get or who the Yankees need to get, that kind of thing. It's great conversation, but I don't think it's going anywhere.
5: Governor uh, David Patterson, you're a one common sense uh, Democrat, and thank you for coming on this Sunday morning, and uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon.
2: Great talking with you, John.
5: What is this Sunday morning? Is Vito Fasella, the uh, borough president of uh, the great uh, borough of Staten Island? And uh, last week, he sued, along uh, with the teachers' union, uh, the MTA on uh, congestion pricing. Um, Vito Facella, welcome to Sunday morning. Uh, can you give us an update of what the heck is going on? And do we have a chance? I'm getting some common sense while the city tries to make a comeback.
7: Well, it's great to be with you, John. Thank you very much. Uh, the short answer is I hope we do. You know, congestion pricing is just another scheme to take money from people's pockets, so to, to toll, to tax, whatever you want to call it. And then at a time when the city is trying to get its, you know, feet back and the perception and the actual reality of crime and reasons people may not want to come to Manhattan, along comes a proposal to further increase the price of just going to work. And from a parochial point of view, uh, Staten Island already pays, in many cases, two tolls to get to work. Now the MTA wants to impose a third toll, which is ludicrous. In large part, people have to use their cars on Staten Island because they've been denied adequate mass transit options for decades to give you an example uh, manhattan households there's about 22 percent of households in manhattan have a car whereas in staten island 83 percent do in large part because they have limited options that's just the way it is but you can't punish people by failing to provide adequate service uh, on their behalf so now they're going to make their lives even more uh, financially troublesome and to give you a perspective uh They're talking about a $15 additional toll, which if you work in Manhattan and drive your car, it's almost $4,000 a year. You know, that could be a vacation for a young family uh, that now they can't uh, pursue it or do. And that's one of the reasons we teamed up with the UFT president, um, the teachers union, Mike Mulgrew, who reached out a few months ago and said that a lot of his young teachers who were assigned to Manhattan shouldn't be punished like that so that's why we teamed up Uh, so that's on the financial end Uh, just if not more important on the environmental end the mta was required uh, by the federal government to perform a study on six specific pollutants and in other words if they're, they're high that's bad for you and the mta came back and said that these six air pollutants will get worse for the people of Staten Island, especially the North Shore, in year one. And they had to project out over the next 22 years, and it will get progressively worse. So they are intentionally uh, imposing an additional toll. They are knowingly going to make air pollution and air quality worse. And the kicker, the the three strikes and you're out, is it's actually going to increase traffic for the people of Staten Island. So that, in a nutshell, is why we are suing and we hope we prevail.
5: Uh, now, uh, people that are coming to work, or people that are coming to see their doctors or their lawyers in Manhattan, or uh, coming to work with their cars, they can't ask their employers for a reimbursement on uh, on congestion pricing. I mean, I think that is against the law. I mean, so what do they do? Yeah, well, they may they may <laughs> they may quit work. It's the equivalent
7: of take getting a salary cut. So if it's 4000 bucks a year, that's after taxes, right? You're almost getting a $7,000 or so uh, salary cut. And now you have insult to injury. There are a lot of people who unfortunately have to take their loved ones to uh, hospitals in Manhattan, perhaps Sloan-Kettering or some of the hospitals on the east or west side, let's say. Um, and they have no choice but to ch- take a car and bring the loved one for treatment. So now in addition to driving, in addition to the parking, in addition to everything else, they have to pose another $15. So they're just it's just, a, just another hodgepodge of, of getting people and punishing people who just want to do the right thing. And I get where they're coming from. They want money, but they should stand in line and argue it like everybody else, whether it's education or public safety or healthcare, whatever it may be. And and one of the positive things that's happened since we filed the lawsuit is almost every elected official on Staten Island has joined in as plaintiffs. Uh, We have been talking with a lot of municipal unions. There seems to be a lot of interest for them to jump on board as well. So we're trying to build the biggest case possible to stand up for people who feel like they're just going to get steamrolled. And one of the items, John, and we hope it doesn't happen, but where congestion pricing exists in other parts of the world, you know, they start off with, you know, a, a nominal price, but then it doubles and triples. So this $15 toll could go to $20, $25, $30 in no time, and, and with, that's why we're trying you're to You're
5: absolutely, uh, Borough President uh, Facelli, you're absolutely right. How much was the, the toll on the Verrazano Bridge that they said is going to go away someday uh, uh, initially?
7: The Arizona Bridge almost about 50 years ago was a 50-cent toll, and now you've got to take out a second mortgage uh, to, to go over the bridge to back and forth to Brooklyn. And that's what happens. You know, it's like the government program that once it's established, it not only never ends, it just grows and grows and grows. It grows and, and grows and grows.
5: To and that's and, and, what
7: happens to the tolls.
5: You know, what I've said publicly, uh, uh, Borough President, was – at least let New York make a comeback first before you start even thinking about imposing this. Well, you're absolutely right, John. Uh,
7: there is a lot of fluctuation in the marketplace. You know better than anyone the real estate uh, business, you're, you're at the top of the ladder on that. and And landlords and tenants and employees and employers are still going through a state of flux of who's coming into the city, who's not. You have theater, Broadway plays of the lowest attendance in, in 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 decades because people are fearful of coming into midtown for example from the suburbs you have a lot of different variables at play and then you come along and drop this congestion pricing grenade right in the middle of it and i think it's just going to disrupt the the situation even more and the, beyond that you know when they had to do this study they did it pre-covid right so we all know that the congestion <laughs> has the, the car traffic and congestion, for lack of a better word, has changed in the last few years. So we say, put the brakes on, take a step back, let the city rebuild, let the city truly recover, and then have a debate how to, how to get another billion dollars from uh, commuters.
5: we got about a minute or so left. Can you give us any comments on the state of the state that uh, Governor Hochul gave this week?
7: I, I think it's... You know, frankly, to move in the the right direction, highlighting some of the things that you, John, and your radio station have helped to promote for the last couple of years. And that is getting back to basics of reducing crime and keeping New Yorkers safe, of trying to recognize that you can't just spend and spend and spend because people will leave and leave and leave. So to me, it was it was more positive uh, than negative negative. Uh, but now, as the old saying goes, the proof was in the pudding. Let's see how, you know, if we're going to start seeing some bail reform changes to, to people who commit violent crimes, that they, they s- spend time behind bars and not out on the street by 5 o'clock, and recognize that we can't – we have to promote business and growth, and we can't spend our way out of it. So that's how I see it. We're hopeful 2024 will be a good year. We can only be optimistic and all that. Try our best and stand up for the good, hardworking people, not only of Staten Island, but this city and state. And we uh, thank you, John, for allowing us to provide that forum and to get the message
5: out. Borough President Vito Fussella, Staten Island, thank you for your common sense on this Sunday morning, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you, as always, John. God bless you. God bless. This is the Catch Table. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Round Roundtable. What is today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Doctor Sky, and we talk to him every Sunday. And we look up in the skies and wonder what the heck is going on. Uh, Steve Cates, uh, uh, give us an update of uh, uh, of what's going on, especially
1: with the the moonshot. Yes. Good morning, John, and good morning to all the listeners out there across the nation. Here we go. The Vulcan Centaur rocket, its first launch ever, was a great success. But on board the astrobotic little lander called Peregrine, we all find out had some difficulties. Here's the backstory. Apparently, on separation from the second stage, as this particular spacecraft was headed toward the moon, something happened to the plumbing. Let's put it that way. A stuck valve may not have opened and closed properly, thus canceling this historic mission. This would have been, John, the first commercial soft landing on the surface of the moon. It's very sad. But also, something interesting that people may not know, on board from a company called Celestus and another company, there were to be 62 of these little capsules of human remains that were going to be set down upon the moon on this little peregrine lander. The Navajo Nation, of course, and there has been a big argument back and forth about how sacred the moon should be to them, and it is. But here's something interesting that nobody's talking about. There were a total of 330 capsules on board the rocket. So 268 of those are still going to go out into space. And I don't know how they got the DNA, John. We have ex-presidents, even George Washington, other famous people like Gene Roddenberry and his wife, so they can rest in this eternal, you know, kind of a cemetery in the sky. And we blast it out going around the sun forever. Amazing stuff.
5: I think they got it from some hair or something that – that was available. And, uh, yes, it's just, you know, you scratch your head and it's amazing. Uh, now, uh, so the the moonshot is not a complete failure. It's only a, a partial failure. Is that what you were saying?
1: I would say that's a good way to summarize it because the lander is not capable of doing it. Here's what they could do, and this would be a waste of the whole you know space mission, more of a disaster. The object could, of course, go into lunar orbit But upon trying to descend to the moon, there's no propellant to control that, and there's no way it would just simply crash into the moon, and that's not a good thing. But future iterations of Astrobotic, we have to mention Astrobotic is a very good company, John. What do I mean by good? They have some great designs on there, but obviously we have some serious issues that have to be taken care of. But here's something quite fascinating many people may not realize. Animals paved the way for space, and here's a quick story. We found out the Russians sent a dog known as Laika, which in Russian means barker, back on November 3rd of 1957. Poor Laika was a street dog, and they actually grabbed her because she was tough, rough, and she could handle probably the harshness of space. She sadly died in space. But we had many, many other animals that went to space. And two of them, another Russian set of dogs, Belka and Strelka, they went up into space, and they came back. And they orbited the Earth, and little Strelka gave birth to six little puppies— one named Pushinka, and this is great. This was a gift from Nikita Khrushchev to President Kennedy and his children, and John, there's probably a bunch of little siblings running around today of little Pushinka, and two tortoises actually orbited the moon way before Apollo 8 went there, and guess what? Those two tortoises came back. They lost a little weight, but they were healthy. Amazing stuff, don't you think?
5: Oh, wow, and, uh, you know, it's just so many things uh... Now, one of the other problems I understand uh, is uh, we have over, what, uh, 5,000 satellites orbiting the Earth, and it's starting to interfere uh, with some of the telescopes?
1: It sure is, John. That's a big concern. I notice it out here, even out in Arizona and other people across the country, around the world. You're trying to take a picture with a decent camera, let's say ground-based, and what do you get? You get all these streaks that are coming through your picture. But on a bigger telescope, some of these monster telescopes that are down in Chile, they're building the ELT, extremely large telescope. But the problem there is you take a picture of a galaxy and you and I look at it and say, Wow, look at that amazing image, but what the heck is that line going through the picture? So what they're trying to do, this is interesting. They're trying to use AI, this is amazing, where it can actually kind of figure out when and where would be the best times to actually shoot these particular pictures so that they can do it ahead of the curve. But the problem, John, we know this. There's so many objects in space, and obviously a space graveyard is starting to form up there. So they have a new way. At least that's something. It's not a total solution. I think, in my opinion, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bigger problem. What do you think?
5: Uh, yeah, I think uh, we mean you talked about it in the past that uh, we need a sanitation uh, uh, department uh, <laughs> satellite to pick up all that uh, uh, crap.
1: (laughs) Um, Go ahead. Anything else? Well, we have the mystery of the week really quickly. We find out that Jupiter, which everybody knows is the largest planet, John, they've just discovered it has magnetic jets of material in a magnetic field. It's 20,000 times the magnetic field of the Earth. Now, it reaches out to 650 million miles in all directions, so that actually covers the Earth. So is this a bad thing? Well, the jury is not out yet because it might protect us from solar flares in a way, or it could just destabilize some of the Earth's magnetic field in a minor way at this point. At least that's what we hope. But Jupiter, you know, as we talk to live sky, John, just simply go outside, look up in a clear sky, and look high up into the southern sky. That object that you see with the naked eye, even in bright city lights, is over 400 million miles away as we open up everybody's minds here on Sunday. We always remind them, go to wabcradio.com for the Dr. Sky experience, talking about these great realms. And appreciate the time with you, John, and the listeners of our morning show here on Sundays as we talk about this with you on the Cats Roundtable.
5: Thank you, Steve Cates, and we'll catch up with you again next Sunday. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. What is this Sunday morning is Dr. Peter Michalos, and he is our in-house genius, our great historian, a great medical person, uh, that uh, gives us advice that we we all have to double check with our own doctors, but it's pretty good advice in my opinion. Doctor Pina Michalo, Sunday morning. What's up? What's going on today?
0: Well, today we're going to talk about a topic that many people sometimes don't like to talk about because it's one of these up close and personal issues, and that's our breath. And good be- good breath, and bad breath sometimes have different causes and different reasons. But why is breath important? Why is what's happening inside our mouth important? Because we're finding out, for example, that heart health is tied with oral health. When we have poor oral health, there's certain bacteria that overgrow and some of the good bacteria are not as prevalent. And that imbalance of bad bacteria can sometimes get into our bloodstream through brushing and through dental procedures. And those bacteria, the same ones that have been found in plaques inside the heart, are the same bacteria found in plaques inside the teeth. And the way it starts off is think of your teeth as a a dirty dish that you put in the sink. If you don't take care of it and wash it and there are certain oils or food on there, it sticks and it's much harder to get off. And the way it works is those bacteria, we form plaque on our teeth. And if we don't take care of that plaque, It becomes tartar, and tartar is like a hard calcified material. That's what the hygienist in the dental office will scrape off and remove. And if you don't get rid of it, it it causes inflammation in the gums because the gums see that as a foreign body and they attack it, and we get what's called gingivitis, and gingivitis can lead to infections. And infections actually can lead to bad breath because some of those bad bacteria put out a gas called hydrogen sulfide. You ever smell sulfur or someone throws a a sulfur bomb. Sometimes they used to do that in high school in the old days because the smell of sulfur is horrible, but that's part of what's associated with bad breath. The other thing that is interesting is that sometimes bad breath doesn't necessarily come from the mouth, but it can come deeper from inside the gut. If we eat certain acidic foods and things that cause acid reflux or we eat late at night, and we lie down and some of that food and acid gets regurgitated and comes up, that goes into the mouth, and that can cause bad breath because basically you're bringing dissolving, digested food up into the mouth area. And that's Doctor, why We important.
5: we We talked a few months ago, and I stopped using the mouthwash with the alcohol in it because I was afraid it was killing some of the good viruses in our mouth. And now the question is, The mouthwash without the alcohol, what is there to be concerned about there?
0: Well, I think what happens is sometimes alcohol-based mouthwashes, they have a very powerful effect, and they kill probably a lot of the good and bad bacteria. And the issue in our mouth is we want to achieve a balance of good and bad bacteria. So, for example, if you eat candy and soda, you're going to feed the bad bacteria. And as far as mouthwashes, there are now zero alcohol mouthwashers because of that reason. The other thing is sometimes in the mouth, it's also dentures. People have dentures and they don't clean them properly. Again, it's like having dirty old dishes. You got to clean them. The other thing is people need to floss because food particles, you can brush your teeth straight on, but you can have food in between the teeth and that also generates a smell. And that's why flossing in between the teeth. And we now know that you need to brush your teeth at least two full minutes. People do a quickie 30-second. That's not enough. You need to do a full two minutes when you clean your mouth. And also we know that saliva is like the immune system of the mouth, and it actually kills some of the bad bacteria. So people with dry mouth tend to have more bacteria and more bad breath. So using a mouthwash that's designed for dry mouth is also helpful. Certain foods like onion, garlic, spices, and coffee also aggravate bad breath.
5: I was at dinner the other night and somebody said to his wife, well, I don't want to use garlic. Uh, you, you you might not sleep with me. But uh, garlic is actually good for you and good for your heart, isn't it? And so how do we separate what's good for you and your heart versus the different viruses in our, uh, in our mouth and our stomach?
0: Well, uh, garlic and low dose, you know, can be can be okay, but if you have excess garlic, obviously it's gonna last and linger in your breath for a long time. And also a lot of these foods that uh, cause the bad breath get into our tongue and something people neglect is to brush their tongue. Because a lot of times, a lot of the bad bacteria that are generating these gases like hydrogen sulfide that smell and bring the odor, they stick in the tongue. So people can have the cleanest teeth, but their tongue is filled with also bad bacteria. So brushing the tongue also, help. but everything is about moderation. And that's what we're learning, finding that balance and, you know, taking care of your dental health. And uh, I had an extensive discussion with Adam Baer, a periodontist, and he was telling me that so many people that he sees in his practice that have the bad gums and gingivitis, they also have a lot of heart disease. And we know that it also affects longevity. And they even did a study and showed when people are missing more than a certain number of teeth their risk of early death increases. So that's why it's important to try to take care of our oral health. And I actually carry a toothbrush around, and my policy is if I just ate food, I'm going to find a bathroom, I'm going to brush my teeth and get those particles out because you want to get those particles of food free before they become plaque and eventually tartar. So those are some of the things that you can do. So you'll save a lot of money on dental bills, you'll have better health, better breasts, and a cleaner microbiome. And you can even test to see what bad bacteria in your mouth. There's a company called Nebula Genomics, and they do a genetic analysis when you swab your mouth and you can tell which bacteria. And they found that, for example, they did in pancreatic cancer patients that they have a certain higher number of bad bacteria in their mouth. So you can even, it'll even give you a warning of diseases like colon cancer if you have certain higher levels of bad bacteria in your mouth. Which is a fascinating new realm in the future of medical testing in the coming years.
5: That is new medicine. Well, Dr. Peter Mihalos, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to talking
0: to you during the week. Thank you for always getting the truth out and keeping our audience healthy.
5: God bless and see you soon. This is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. What is today's Nicole Galenus? She's a contributing editor to the Manhattan Institute City Journal and also to the New York Post. It's 2024. Things are going to come to roost on budgets and the migrant situation. Nobody really knows the truth. Nobody really has the pulse of what's really going on uh, in New York City, in New York State. Give us your impression of what's going on.
4: Good morning, John, and Happy New Year. Yeah, we'll get our city and state budgets uh, this upcoming week. What we know so far is that the city faces at least a $7 billion budget deficit. And it's striking because that's actually after the mayor has, has proposed major cuts. So, in other words, even after the mayor cancels the incoming police departments, closes the libraries on Sundays, delays a swimming program by a year, we're still faced with this $7 billion budget deficit. The other aspect of that is that we're not in a recession. You know, usually we have a budget deficit because the economy has turned down. We've lost jobs. We've lost tax revenue. The economy is not doing great in the city compared to the country, but we're we're in nowhere near a recession. This is almost entirely due to the migrant costs are costing $4 billion a year to shelter the migrants And the reasons that the mayor uh, awarded the municipal workers asking for any concessions in return. So the mayor largely has created this budget crisis. He seems to have no way to get out of it, no real constructive ideas other than, you know, yelling and complaining about it. And if we were to have a recession, it would be much worse.
5: The migrant crisis, they're still coming in. Does anybody really have a handle where these people are, I mean, if a hundred thousand came in, how many are really being paid for by the city still? And 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 I understand the mayor is evicting certain people after sixty days. Or give us your thoughts on that.
4: So there are seventy thousand migrants in city shelter, including marquee hotels like the Roosevelt Hotel, the Rose Hotel. Right now, so that is more than double the pre-existing homeless population in 20, early 2022 before the migrant uh, surge began. The key problem is that the mayor still has not questioned the city's right to shelter every single newcomer who comes into New York City. You know, he's he's doing all kinds of things like the new 30 and 60-day shelter limits. The problem is unless he gets, unless he goes to court and tries to get a high court ruling on the right to shelter, which has never happened. The city just voluntarily agreed that it had a right to uh, a burden to offer people right to shelter back in the 1980s. Unless he gets a high court to rule that's not in the Constitution, which it's not, you won't find a right to shelter anywhere in the Constitution. He's just going to be facing lawsuits on these 30 and 60 day limits. You know, that is kind of the worst of both worlds. I mean, he's he won't challenge the right to shelter on legally but he's challenging it on the ground so he's he's putting us at risk of major lawsuits for not actually providing the shelter that he claims to be providing and the other issue is there's just nowhere to put people anymore i mean we are we are out of shelter new york does not have tens of thousands of empty hotel rooms or apartment units and you see that with the Randall's Island and the Floyd Bennett Fields. We had to evacuate the Floyd Bennett Field shelter because it's not safe to be in an in extreme weather event. And we have constant crime and chaos, including a murder over the weekend at the Randall's Island communal shelter. So the city is pretending that it can offer something that it can't offer. It's spending a whole lot of money to do this at the expense of basic public services, and it just can't go on forever. Give me also the
5: pulse. Are citizens continuing to
4: move, or
5: are they just moving temporarily and not selling their apartments? You you tell
4: us. Uh, no, I think it's fair to say that the city has lost some population. You know, New York lost half a million people in 2020. and 2021, it's the highest percentage of population in the country behind San Francisco. Uh, these people were predominantly middle class upper middle class and upper class you know some people left because the pandemic uh, made them not want to live an urban life but many people left because of the frustration over the rise in crime and disorder and the increase in taxes that we saw in the last uh, years of the Cuomo and first year of the Hochul administration so we have not regained that population uh there's there's no evidence that that we have rebuilt that population last year the census numbers aren't out yet for for last year, so yes we we have a lot of in as the governor said in her state of the state speech on Tuesday, we have a lot of work to do to to stop this migration out of New York City, but so far uh you know no no real movements on making the city and state more livable and and trying to lower the costs a little bit for people here
5: last question the office market seems to be in bad shape. I mean, what do you understand? Are people coming to work? People
4: are coming to work two to three days a week. There's, you know, there's no evidence that we've returned to five days a week work. Even the banks and the law firms that have allegedly made people go back five days a week It's like any rule that's not enforced, you know, people are still not coming in Mondays and Fridays. You see this in the numbers on subway and the commuter rail and the Port Authority uh, path train and the uh, the commuting buses and so forth. And you can just go outside a major bank uh, and you see the numbers are much, much lower Monday and Friday than during the weekdays. So, you know, I think we can kind of declare the five days a week commuting week dead. It's just a matter of can we continue to attract people two and three days a week? And I think we we still have to work on the quality of life in Midtown. I mean, just think about the Roosevelt Hotel. This is a property right smack next to Grand Central, right across from the J.P. Morgan Chase building. And you've got dozens of illegal mopeds, no license plates. You've got graffiti on the back of the building. The city plunks migrants down there and is not even doing the barest minimum to make sure that the property sort of fits into an acceptable midtown quality life. So, you know, if you can't even get that right with the hundreds of millions of dollars in security that we're spending on these sites, very, very difficult to tackle the longer term problems in midtown, which the mayor still has not really done.
5: Well, Nicole Galinas, thank you for your update. I cannot say that I feel better about it, but I guess when other numbers come in the next couple of weeks, uh, you'll come back and report back to our, uh, new york city citizens thank you so much
4: sure thank you
5: john thank you for being with us for the cat's roundtable local edition the number one show on sunday mornings in new york keep listening to us for the cat's roundtable national edition between nine o'clock and ten o'clock so we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news